Uh, and since we are recording, if you both wouldn't mind just stating your names for the record. Yeah, my name is Will Beecher, and I'm Richard Freeland. Thank you so much. Now, both of you have worked in uh, animation industry for some time, but I believe this is the first feature film as director for both of you. So can you talk about how that opportunity came about? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, well, we, you're right. Yes, we've both been at Ardman for quite a few years, but also worked independently outside of that. And we both have a filmmaking background, so both going to uh, unis to, to make our own films. And I think with that in mind, um, I started out in the animation department and, and have always focused on character and uh, performance, but I've always tried to make short films in between projects at Ardman. So I guess uh, maybe four years ago or so, uh, I s spoke to Nick Park about directing and uh, got a job on Shaun the Sheep series five as episode director. And then after that, I worked with Nick on uh, Early Man as his animation director alongside Merlin Crossingham. And then the opportunity for this came up when the producers, uh, Paul Cooley and uh, Carla, had asked whether I would direct it with Rich together. Because I think they saw that Rich is background in storyboard and uh, script writing across a number of series and also the half hour and the first feature as a story artist mm -hmm. um, meant that we, we'd fit together quite well. So with that story understanding and with the sort of animation floor experience, that's how it came about. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, similar. So I went to the National Film School in the UK where I directed uh, short animation films. And so my graduation film was seen by Ardman. So they um, brought me in as a story artist. And then I've worked as a story artist at Ardman on Short the Sheep miniseries of that and a a writer and then the head of story. And so when they said like, it's, um, would you like to direct like the producer for Culeastus? Um, and so, yeah, I jumped at the chance because like, it's a dream come true. Absolutely. And as you both mentioned, you, this isn't your first go around with Sean the Sheep. You've, you've been working with the character for a while for both the TV yeah. series uh, and the previous movie. So when, when exactly did the idea for Farmageddon come about? How did this, this sequel come up? And what have both you and Sean been up to for the last five years since the last big movie? Uh, so we literally, as the first film was coming to an end, we started to have brainstorm meetings about what we could do next with Sean the Sheep. And so in the first film, he, he left the farm to go on an adventure to find the farmer. And then we thought, what could we bring to the farm that would be more fun? And so we talked about a lot of different ideas, like they discover something buried on the farm or like something escapes on the farm. And then someone said, it was actually Richard Starter, the creator from the what if an alien crashed on the farm? And then um, everyone just lit up. because like we realized we'd never made a sci-fi film on Hardman and we could sort of have loads of fun with like crop circles and UFOs and secret government organizations and robots. It just sort of snowballed from there really. And so, um, yeah, three years of hard work, of sort of writing and story process and then actual shooting. Um, and then Farmageddon was born. But in that initial meeting, um, we were just talking around ideas and Nick Park was there and he just lit up and he just went, you guys could call it Farmageddon. And then everyone laughed and um, so we wrote that down and then it sort of, it just stuck because it was so funny. So speaking about bringing the alien character Alula to the farm, what was the maybe conversation process and what the character was going to look like, what their backstory was going to be, what kind of powers they would have? How, how did that particular characters, since every, everybody else was kind of, you know, formed up and, and quite literally made at that point. What was the process like in creating this character? Yeah, it was, it was a real challenge because Sean is so well known and, and so iconic in his design. We 
did spend a long time working with lots of different designs and drawings until we ended up with the Lulu that you see now. Um, it was, but it was a great sort of open brief for the the art department and model making just to have a go at designing all sorts of different aliens. But we knew from a story point of view, we wanted to bring someone into the the world that Sean would instantly like. We wanted her to be likable to him. And then over the course of the film, he discovers that she's quite different to um, what he imagined. So we spent a lot of time talking about all those attributes. We wanted to make it bright and colorful. We wanted her to have these intergalactic sort of alien powers. And as with everything, we, we spent uh, time just refining and honing the look of her. Um, one of our story artists actually, uh, Ash Foddy, drew, drew her outline in the end um, by drawing a UFO, a Roswell-style UFO for a head, and the rocket thrust underneath became a body. And it was great because it was a very classic, very simple shape. We had some earlier designs that were really complicated. And, and so once we landed on that, it was a case just then of embellishing and building up and eventually getting our animation team. They got their hands on her and, you know, she came to life. And, and sometimes when you're coming up with a character and then you have to take that, you know, kind of idealized vision to the reality of your fabrication department, your animation team, was there anything in coming up with maybe the fantastic powers? Was there anything that the animation team was like, I don't know how we're going to animate this? Or were, was there anything that was particularly challenging or difficult? And then on top of that, did you have any ideas for, for Lula that maybe didn't make it to the screen? Well, early on, the idea was that um, that she would be she would have these sort of Hulk out moments where she could transform huge. Um, so it basically, because what Sean doesn't realize early on is that she's maybe younger than he is. He thinks that they're contemporaries. And so she's having these sort of temper tantrums, but he just thinks she's got this sort of Hulk-like power. And then it just became, there's no way we could actually build this, um, the transformation moments. It's like in, in stop motion. And also we realized we didn't need it. We just needed her to be incredibly manic and the sort of zany, and that would give us the same sort of uh, feeling. Um, and at one point we had a, she used to walk on these giant tentacles as well. We realized we would never be able to frame them in the same shot. Like she'd be like eight foot in the air and he wouldn't. And so sometimes it's just the considerations of the story and like having these two feel like they're against the world, like they've, they've become this really well-bonded pair. And so we wanted to sort of keep that going. And so we would give her every power we could think of in order to help the story and then strip them away and go, does that really help us? Or does that just get us out of a jam that we're in? Mm. And so uh, we want them to get out jams through their, their ingenuity and their cleverness rather than just go, Lula has another power that can get us out of health problems. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice. We wanted them more. Lula has powers that would get them into trouble. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Or the sort of like the remit that we would work through. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and we had like practical technical things as well, like the fact that her ears were gonna light up when she she lifts objects off the ground. And that was something that we did some initial tests just to see if we could do them in camera, but it was quite quickly apparent it was never gonna look or feel the way we really wanted it to. So we embraced the sort of CG elements of lighting and volumetrics and things to make it feel genuine when it was happening. Because we wanted to keep it in a way, it's lo-fi, it's, it's a science fiction film, but it's a shorn version of a science fiction film. So we couldn't go too spectacular with it. But um, but with those elements on her, we did want it to feel for Sean like these things were actually happening. So we've got this great 
animation team who will do literally any test we throw at them. Um, but the lights inside our ears were one thing we realized we had to we had to reach outside of the studio. So speaking about that, were there any new tools that maybe you developed or techniques or like you said, sort of third party uh, help with, with uh, computer generated elements? Anything that you used on Farmageddon that you wish you had either on the previous movie or movies, you know, 20 years ago, anything that made it easier or were all these kinds of uh, leaps in technology and progress, are they just sort of Ardman's pushing the boundaries of what is possible? Yeah, I guess we're always sort of like every film is sort of an iterative process of going, how can we push things further? So we had previews on this film, but we've had previews since Chicken, the first Chicken Run movie. It's just like it's just got much more sort of smooth and easy to use. And so, and then digital set extensions. So the art department would build as much as possible, but then we would have CG elements or we'd actually sort of reach back to the history of filmmaking and we'd have actual map paintings instead. So it's just sort of like, just as long as it, the illusion held up and the audience was immersed, every trick in the book we would use of like, we would build miniatures of one location, but have larger puppets. So it felt like they were closer or further away from camera, things like that. Um, we used 3D printing for a lot of the vehicles and props. Yeah. Um, the, the funny thing about Arvin is it's, it is like we're, we're pushing technology. As Rich says, every film we do, we push technology. But at the same time and in the same studio, we've got the most lo-fi solutions to things you can imagine. So our production board, you know, they, they're not using high-end computers to run the schedule. They're literally using pictures from the storyboard pinned together with bits of elastic band to show where the animator is going. As, yeah, there's like um, we needed to show that something was on fire off camera. So the, the DP, he stuck like a like an old brown bottle over a light and had it rotate because the way the light just bounces through it, it creates that sort of like that almost fireside glow. Yeah. And so you go, well, it works. We don't need to sort of reinvent the wheel and find this really expensive CG solution if we just... Right. Take bottles in front of Yeah, he's got so many jam jars. <laughs> yeah, I love that though. I love seeing the sort of like the the old school solutions to things like that, or for effects you never would have thought possible to do practically right there on set. Uh, especially, and I want to talk about kind of the space element of this story because I don't know if if having action sequences and stuff in space, I don't know if that's easier to do in stop motion or if that's that's literally like a new frontier. Um, did you guys discover you had to create? come up with new approaches for things that were sort of set in space to kind of take things away from gravity, away from Earth? Yeah, and the, the spaceship itself was really complicated for us because um, it is a physical thing that exists and it took a long time to build and design, but within it, inside it, there are so many individually positioned LED lights. So like LEDs is something we're using more and more on each film, and actually that has been really useful. We can get tiny lights in front of the characters so they feel like they're in this UFO with a million buttons that are all different. But um but it did also make it more complex and you know the scales of it were really hard to work with at first. Yeah, so like 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 also like the dashboard, like every button the character can press and it can glow and turn off. But of course there are hundreds of buttons so there's hundreds of wires underneath the dashboard. And like inside all that the animators got to climb in as well. So it's really complex. And then we used previous a lot for the space sequences, just to sort of figure out the timing and the movement of things. So mm -hmm. certain elements are CG, but then like they built the International Space Station, the astronauts are all stop motion puppets. So they knew how long it would be on camera for and how it would have to move gently and sort of where the CG elements would be so that the eye lines could work. 
Um, but at the same time, it's just sort of like it's huge art department sort of coming together to build these amazing sets as well. Mm. So, so it's a wonderful mix of like the traditional and then sort of like CG technology. And speaking of traditional talking sci-fi, I would imagine you guys had a blast just coming up with the little Easter eggs from sci-fi movie history, you know, things like references to 2001, uh, Doctor Who, Close Encounters of the Third, I mean, just a ton of them. So yeah. were there any that maybe that we missed, uh, either we didn't get to see on screen literally, or maybe we missed because they happened so fast, or do you guys have a favorite kind of Easter egg or nod to a sci-fi classic in there? There are tons. I mean, there are literally tons. <laughs> and nearly every scene and every shot has something in it because not only do we love sci-fi and the story team loves sci-fi, but everyone in every department has added ideas and sci-fi jokes. So the art department constantly thinking of, uh, of puns and things that they can put in books. You know, like I love there's this, um, a, a certain point in the film, there's a flashback for one of the characters and you see them in a classroom. And in that classroom, there's about three or four different sci-fi gags that most people will never ever see, but they just make us laugh, and so they go into they go into the film. Yeah, I have a similar one in the underground base. There's a canteen where all the hazmats eat, and there's like a notice board on the wall, and it's um, Logan's Running Club. <laughs> I think I missed that one. Yeah. And it's great. It's sort of like everyone's just going, "My favorite film is this. Can we sneak it in?" Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've had a few we couldn't get in, but mostly we've been good the, the best thing is the art department they have added pretty much every box or packet in the supermarket is a reference to a sci-fi film and it's one of those things where you just have to sort of pause it and just see like they've come up with every single one mm. so it's just been such a lot otherwise all we just argue about what the funniest one is like the, the mechanic shop at the start of the film is called hg wheels right uh, but like we talked for being a Star Trek reference to Scotty or like the best engineers in the universe, like all these different things. So there's loads of like debate as to what the funniest sci-fi reference is as well. Do you guys know if you have plans for any sort of behind the scenes featurettes or sort of like Easter egg guides or anything like that on the ultimate uh, home release? I know this just came out a few months ago and it's just coming out on Netflix for us here in the States, but do you know if there are any plans uh, in the works or are you working on behind the scenes? On the Blu-ray, there's a making of Farmageddon, but I don't know um, what they've cut together. because like we had some really great um, camera uh, people throughout who were filming all the time other Mm. things. They've shot these beautiful sort of making ups where the sets are being constructed, or the animators like time lapse photography. Mm. We can see the animators sort of like flitting here and there whilst the puppets are alive. Mm. And so yeah. hopefully, yeah, there's going to be sort of like spot of references. Yeah, well. yeah, there's loads of great footage, and it is um, it is amazing to see the scales. You know, when you get a human, when you get one of the crew standing next to one of these sets, you realise how enormous and amazing it all is. So uh, hopefully, yeah, hopefully everyone will get to see the behind the scenes that we've shot. Absolutely. And like I mentioned, this is coming out on Netflix in in just a few days for us here in the States. But since it's been out in theaters for a little while, how has the reception been uh, to the movie so far? And how's your reaction been? Well, from really from the first test screening we had, we we were um, understandably nervous having been given this, you know, this huge character, Sean Machete, to make a, a second film with. And that first test screening was a sort of pivotal moment for us because we'd spent about two years working on this new character, Lula. And she got a great, she got a very warm and very genuine response in front of that audience. And from that moment on, we felt like we'd made the right kind of choices. And we've seen it now in different countries. You know, we did a tour and we've been and seen the premiere in France and been to where else? We've been to Japan and everywhere. Japan, lots of countries. And, and it's 
what's really lovely is that it is a film that connects with people from different cultures, but also people of different ages. And one of the best screenings we had, I think, was these teenagers in Italy who just loved it. It's quite a hard audience, teenage, but they really, really loved it. So yeah, it's been good. Yeah. That's great. Uh, what do you guys see as the future maybe for the character of Sean the Sheep since you've been with the character for, for quite some time now? Uh, well, um, we're still working on Sean Adventures at the moment in the studio. Um, nothing I can talk about just yet. Right. But um, he's not going away. He's not going anywhere yet. <laughs> yeah, there's always there's always more ideas. And uh, so we'll, we'll keep plugging away. Yeah. Good answer. Uh, what do you hope to see for maybe the future of Ardman Animation in the years to come? Um, I really, we've got some fantastic projects coming up. I don't know what I can talk about or not, but um, we've got something that looks totally new and totally fresh and different from everything done before. And it's, I, I've seen them building this test and I've seen the test. It looks amazing. Mm. And um, it's so exciting. Every, everyone on the crew is excited because it's like, we're just seeing how far we can push stop motion and new directions with the look and design. And then at the same time, sort of like, firm fan favorites chicken run is uh, chicken run 2 is in development right now and that's sort of like that's powering ahead and the story is sort of shaping up really well and so like we've got this nice sort of like mix of things happening right now in the studio which everyone's really excited about is there anything you can tease about chicken run 2 because we haven't heard too much or at least as far as uh, maybe your involvement with the film uh it has chickens in it nice <laughs> um i don't think we can say anything just yet it's just um Sam Fell is working on it and it's really exciting. It's just, it's got some firm fan favorites from the first one in it, but I can't say much more than that. Fair enough. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to jump back uh, real quick before I run out of time with you, jump back to maybe the story breaking process a little bit. Mm -hmm. Since Shaun the Sheep, sort of the franchise is kind of known for not having dialogue. You don't have sort of traditional dialogue to, which sometimes helps support or even carry the story. So. What was your process like in not only maybe the voice recording booth to get your actors to uh, emote correctly, um, but also in the story breaking process, knowing you can't rely on dialogue to carry these scenes? Yeah, we, we work with um, uh, Mark Burton, who co-wrote the first film with Richard Starzak. He, he was our writer on this and, um, and Paul Cunley, the producer. We'd often sit in a room together debating and talking about the story. And a lot of that was about um, finding the best scenarios and, and it was tricky in a way because we have three narratives at one point. The, the story breaks into different directions. So we spent a long time working on those different parts, but always, always thinking about comedy and also emotion. So why, why we care about Lula and Sean in the first place. And that was our, that was our core sort of, we spent all our time on that really. And, and then the story team, we relied on them heavily. We test everything in story. We do multiple versions of sequences over and over again to try and get across, you know, without words. Um, and we test that story sequence on people in the company, like um, yeah. the, the founders of the company and, and Nick Park. They would they'd come in every few months and watch the reel and give us a sense of whether they felt it was working, whether we were getting those important beats across. And, and then we would get into the animation uh, side of things and we'd act everything out with the animators and again that's really like trying to find the best way of of selling a particular joke or an emotion or the way a character's thinking 
constantly, you know, just finessing all the time and, and always questioning and sort of pitching to each other about, I think maybe it would be clearer this way, or I think this, this idea and the story isn't fitting in here. It's confusing. So, you know, we move things around quite a lot. And our editor, Sim, was just brilliant at, at seeing the whole, you know, working with those three different stories and weaving them. He was, he was invaluable for that process. What about the, the, the actors? <laughs> I was going to say, you've sort of covered it all. No, um, no. <laughs> uh, Justin and John, who are the voices of uh, Sean and Bits from the Farmer, they are sort of the masters of it. So they would watch the animatic and we would discuss the emotions that Sean and uh, Bits from the Farmer are going through. So they would then bring all this sort of warmth and comedy in like it's to all the bars and sort of like the nonsense speak that the farmer does. And then we had a new actress, Amalia, um, and she just brought this amazing warmth to Lula and she did this sort of like, it sounds like Lula's talking to herself, like she's a little kid and so everything to her is exciting and interesting, but then there's this sort of mischievous element to the way she sort of giggles, like she's always looking for fun and like she's she's essentially Sean magnified, so she's, she's more fun-loving than he is and she pushes the boundaries even further, like he has a line in the sand for him that he won't cross and like she doesn't even know what that means and so... <laughs> He's forever trying to reel her back in. And and so Amalia was just able to sort of bring that to life and then the bring all these everything to all the elements coming together and then screening it is sort of like it's a constant refining process. I think even once we've begun shooting, we're still reboarding scenes that the animators haven't got to, so we can start to go, is that clear? Could it be clearer? Mm-hmm. Um will, it, will an audience understand this? It's always we we're constantly testing because there's no dialogue. Uh, sorry, there's yeah, there's no spoken dialogue. But also, I think sometimes it's the boarding process is so crucial for Sean the Sheep, where um, every nuance and inflection is boarded to test. So that then, when we test it with the animators, we'll perform it all, and then we'll add, we'll plus that in the live action video, and then they can plus that again in the animation. And so it's a constant sort of refining and then plusing process. And then, like you said, sometimes you don't even need spoken dialogue at all. Like I could watch that mini mart scene with the soda, uh, yeah. the sugar rush over and over again. I think that's it. It's just like it's it's the, the looks to camera or just the looks to each other. And you go, I know exactly what they're thinking. Yeah, it's like, that's the sort of magic of it. It's funny actually because the more you do, you know, the more dialogue you put in, actually, the more off-putting it is. In a way, we sometimes try to strip it out because because you're not being carried by words. We're not selling this story with someone telling you what to think it's all about the acting and it's all about the, the situations they're in so yeah and my last question for you guys today what's up next for the both of you that you can actually talk about do you have any other sort of side projects or any passion projects you're working on well yeah i've, I've got a couple of ideas um for films of different lengths so i'm currently developing those and um and there's a couple of projects here that i'm also involved with yeah, I'm working on some projects here at Artman that annoyingly I can't talk about. <laughs> the diplomatic approach, I appreciate it. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for your time today. Uh, looking forward to the release of Farmageddon here in the States on Netflix for everyone to check out. And looking forward, obviously, to more from the both of you and Artman as well. So thanks again for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave.